For as long as Sanjay Poonin can remember, he has been infatuated with teams. Whether it was the late Kobe Bryant and his Los Angeles Lakers or Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, the idea of team success has consistently guided Sanjay from one point of his life to the next. Today, Sanjay serves as the chief operating officer for VMware, a company that employs more than 10,000 employees and is helping people unlock new opportunities through technology. On this episode of IT Visionaries, he discusses his love of teams, as well as the importance of continual learning and how you can unlock your own opportunities within your company. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, and we have a special guest today. Sanjay, what's going on? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Sanjay, as we get underway, I wanted to ask you about an article you wrote about building amazing teams. It was a piece I really enjoyed going through. And as you look back, what are some of the things that you've learned through your career about building teams and some of the things that you look for when assembling a team? You know, I think it's a tremendous focus of all leaders. And I've been very fortunate to work uh, with some incredible leaders and CEOs. You know, today, our CEO, Pat Gelsinger, the guy I worked for prior to that, Bill McDermott. And the person before that, John Thompson, who was CEO of Symantec and now chairman of Microsoft. And I, yeah, I said in that article, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go in pairs or go in teams. And uh, I think, you know, the one thing that's constant in many of these sports is you could have an incredible athlete. And you look at many of the sports that had incredible athletes who were individual performance for a long period of time until they really constitute a team, whether it was Michael Jordan in the early years or Kobe Bryant in the early years or um, LeBron James or football, or you could look at many of the individual success. I was telling my, a couple of my friends who are Chiefs fans, I mean, over the last, certainly I haven't been following them for 50 years because I'm just 50, but if you were following them last decade or two, there's some incredible athletes that went through Kansas, but they never really constitute a team, I think, that's as good as this one. You know, great teams ultimately win championships. And I think the same thing is true in business. Um, individual talents take you so far. Uh, but when you can get multiple individuals who are talented, but then find a way by which they work collaboratively as a team without ego and any prima donna mindset, uh, with the focus on the customer, focus on winning, focus on innovation, great things happen. And the Silicon Valley is filled with great case studies to that effect. Yeah. And, you know, before we get into what you're working on as CEO of VMware, I want to know, how did you get started in technology in the first place? I, um, you know, in India, I grew up in India and I came to this country when I was 18 as an immigrant. In the 70s and 80s, you know, pretty much if you were kind of in high school and followed a science education, we used to joke that the world divided into two roads. You either became a doctor or an engineer. Um, And I had a little bit more of the physics and math kind of side to it. My mom was a little bit more biology, so she was a doctor. And I had more of the desire to do, you know, engineering. So I'd, um, you know, had that mindset early that had a strong interest in in physics and math. And I began to 
you know, learn you know, what this idea of computers and computer science was towards the tail end of my, we didn't have a computer at home, but I began to study a little bit about it. And then in my, I think I was 17, my junior or senior year, uh, we got an old, you know, one of those, I forget even what the name is, like an old form of Atari. It wasn't quite an Atari, but where you had a tape and you coded in basic and I learned a little bit of that. And then I really wanted to do computer science. And I was very fortunate to get the scholarship uh, to come to Dartmouth College as an undergrad. Um, and that's the only reason I came to this country was on that scholarship. And Dartmouth had a fantastic computer science program. And it was in that four years that I really, you know, got to understand what this incredible movement of software was going to do. Uh, I mean, the Macintosh had just come out. Apple was one of my favorite companies. I ended up graduating from college and coming to work at Apple. So much of the entire tech revolution in the 1990s, um, I got to witness firsthand in the Silicon Valley. But the basis of that was a STEM education in, in school and then a focus in computer science, math and engineering in college. I'm very fortunate. I think that's the, my lesson that I give uh, young kids and college students today. You know, it's really important whether you end up studying engineering or studying something else to have, um, you know, a, a good foundation in STEM. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. You are a COO now, and it kind of seems like you have jumped around in a bunch of different areas in the business. You know, normally when we talk to a lot of CIOs and CTOs on this podcast, you see kind of this, some level of engineering background, you know, a love for technology, but the difference between kind of being in those head of technology roles and moving into COO is potentially you have to be closer to the business. We talk a lot about IT and technology leaders. What is the next step to have them be the next CEOs, to be the next COOs? How did you kind of fall into this role? What was exciting about joining VMware for you? I mean, I think what I have been, I mean, in my last 25 years in the industry, I've been about 60, 65%, two thirds of the time, let's say in engineering product roles. And that's kind of my roots. I'm a product and engineering guy at heart, a technologist. But about a third of the time I've been in go-to-market roles. And I encourage, you know, aspiring general managers, if you would, you know, whether you're going to be a CEO or not, but if you want to be a stronger and stronger general manager, I encourage leaders to do a tour of duty in functions outside of what they normally do. So if you're coming from an engineering role, go spend some time in a go-to-market role, whether it's sales or marketing or business development, and really run revenue and have it such that your your neck depended on, your head depended on the making of those numbers. And I think when an engineer gets to live the life of a salesperson, or a salesperson gets to live the life of an engineer, and engineering and and um, sales are the two biggest parts of any you know, software company, especially enterprise software companies. So I was very fortunate. Um, I think in uh, five years into my four or five years into my eight years at SAP, Bill McDermott, my boss at the time, encouraged me to come out of a product engineering job and move into a sales leadership role. And it was completely outside my comfort zone. Um, I'd never done that before. I had done, you know, partial sales roles, but everything I learned about sales, I learned from him. He's a fantastic, probably one of the best enterprise selling in the industry. Um, and if you're going to learn from anybody, it's the McDermott University, as I joke about it, of, of, of sales <laughs> go to market. So I was very fortunate. I mean, I, and that's, you know, the power of mentors and people like him. So uh, fast forward into VMware, I was, came to VMware to actually run a product business unit. In fact, that article that you talked about, I wrote... Uh, while I was running that business unit that we grew to a billion dollars and use a computer and came to run that engineering team. Uh, and then about three years into that journey, 
Uh, you know, the company is going through some transition. The CFO of the company left. The COO of the company left. The person who was doing my job before running the go-to-market and packed. I think given the fact that I had done go-to-market before at, at SAP and felt I had experience, I mean, it took a better me, and I'm very grateful uh, because it gave me an opportunity to last um, almost four years now to put my fingerprints on the go-to-market of this organization that we've accelerated now our revenue focused on, you know, an ecosystem of cloud partners, accelerating to some new businesses like security and containers and so on. So it's been a, you know, fabulous. And from my perspective, it's all about learning, you know, because I'm a big fan of the growth mindset. And if you are learning and uh, even if it's outside your comfort zone, if you're learning and you're growing, uh, there's always things that you didn't know uh, before that you're going to hopefully discover. And for me, I think in the two thirds of my job, that's been product engineering jobs, or in the one third uh, that's been sales and go to market jobs in my last 25 years, they've been tremendous learning experiences and that never ends. And the moment you stop learning, it's probably time to go do something different and that day hasn't come as yet. Yeah, I'm curious, when you were sitting sitting down looking at your, your 2020 plans, do you have a, a, a checklist or something of Sanjay's uh, uh, things that are outside of his comfort zone that you need to work on? Like, what are you working on learning now? What do you think is outside of that comfort zone as a COO? I mean, listen, I think there's a couple of things that are very, I mean, as a technologist, you always are being humble because there's things about a, about a technology stack that you don't know well enough, right? I mean, I came in from the top end of, of software applications, analytics, so it's the higher levels of the stack where people are selling to business users. I've not been in the lower levels of infrastructure. So the more that I spend time at VMware learning kind of what infrastructure software looks like, and it's deeper, closer to hard. If you think about technology as having hardware, software, and then applications on top of that, you know, I've kind of come top down into this and the infrastructure space is closer to hardware. So the more that I can learn technology about what's going on in aspects of server storage networking, how does that really operate with the hardware layer? It's just, you know, outside my comfort zone of what I did for, you know, 20 out of the 25 years of my existing industry. That's always good to learn and that the world is becoming a very blended stack. That's number one. Number two, I have a lot of contacts from my years at SAP and VMware and Symantec that are CFOs, CIOs, because we sold very heavily to that community. Thousands, and that's probably one of the reasons I'm able to be successful in my role is I have a Rolodex that's very wide from my years, and I keep I take pride in in sustaining and cultivating that relationship. Uh, but there's two aspects of the that Rolodex I'm seeking to expand. One is now that I'm also running the security business, you know I probably know a few thousand you know CIOs of the top two three thousand companies in the world. Uh, I don't know that many chief security officers who sometimes report to the CIO, sometimes may actually be a peer of the CIO. And now that I run that security business unit, I've given myself a, you know, kind of objective, try and meet and, and, you know, get the collective input and guidance and counsel from some of the top 1,000, 2,000 CISOs in the world over the course of the next several years. It's not one thing you can achieve in just, you know, a few months or a year. It may take you some time. And that will help me broaden. And nobody in the industry has really been able to cement relationships with CIOs and CISOs. And then the second relationship Rolodex, I, you know, I'm constantly looking to expand is CEOs who increasingly now see VMware and what we're doing is critical to them. And some of those, one or two of them, might even be personal mentors to me, um, you know, in my journey, because uh, they may be seeing things in a different landscape than just my own views. So I think when you look for people who are the folks you can learn from, and the security domain, that's kind of part of what I'm looking to do more often than CEOs. There are a couple of bigger company CEOs that I can learn from. And as you do that, I think you become a 
uh, better and more effective leader. Yeah. Do you look at things like, you know, one to many versus one to one? It seems like it would be difficult as you're trying to keep up with so many, you know, CIOs and cultivate relationship with CISOs and, and people like that. I, I'm curious, you know, how are you getting feedback from the market? How are you getting feedback from your colleagues and being able to put that back into innovation to, to bring that back to your team? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that from my perspective, you know, first off, I use social media a lot. So LinkedIn, I've got probably, I think the max number of contacts you can have, that was just 30,000. You know, in the industry, you can have relationships with CIOs that are at smaller companies. We call them, you know, mid-market companies. But the top 2,000 companies in the world are really the ones who spend the most amount of money uh, in terms of IT. So knowing who those, you know, Fortune 1,000 CIOs are, the global 2,000, the Fortune 1,000 are the biggest 1,000 companies in the U.S., the global 2,000 of the top 2,000 companies in the world, knowing who those CIOs are and having relationships with them. And this you know, happens over time. I have a list of who they are. I, I think in the S&P 500, which are the subset of the 500,000, I know every one of them. And then you, know, you cultivate relations because some of them change and you meet them because they come to meet you at a briefing that we might do or you may go to visit them. And over time, you're talking to them, you have that cell phone, you might, you know, and you're cultivating a relationship based on input. Now, you're hoping to do business more with all of them, but over time, you know, some of them may do more. So it's not like all, you know, 1,000 in the U.S. and 2,000 in the world, uh, but certainly with the ones who have done the most with us. And then you can slice it by industry, maybe in banking or in public sector or in telco or in healthcare, where we've been more successful. Those CIOs I might have an even better relationship with. So, you know, I think there's ways to slice this. And, and you know, I get restless if I'm spending a day uh, at the company, not talking to a customer at all. You know, I'm, I love being able to get the input of customers. And I think I'm wired a little bit like a relationship person who likes to ask questions, likes to uh, gain insights. And you know, if I have a half an hour with a particular CIO, I'm structuring it in a way where the first 15 minutes I'm asking, I'm listening to him or her based on questions I can ask uh, them. And then the next, you know, 10 minutes, I might give them a little bit of our perspective. And then, you know, the last five minutes, you kind of, so and typically many of my conversations, if they're not in person, are in these quick half an hour phone calls. Or I love video conferencing now. We use Zoom a lot. And those are very effective ways. And then, of course, many times you're in person, pressing the flesh, meeting them at their location or when you're hosting them here. But whatever the scheme is, I think there's no substitute for having a wide Rolodex. And, you know, I'd say one final thing, we spend a lot of time with system integrators who are partners, uh, you know, the Accentures, the Deloitte, the HCLs, Whip Pros. They're often a substitute because they're talking to customers all the time. Our partners could be a collector for a hundred different customers they talk to. So getting their input and feeding that in often substitutes my having to talk to hundreds of customers because they have those relationships and they can feed that in. So those discussions with partner executives are often very helpful because they could channel many to one, you know, so all of these techniques, whether it's one-on-one discussions that I have on social media or directly over phone or Zoom, whether it's meeting them in a group setting uh, at a big conference like VMworld or another one, or using partners as a vehicle to get input from them. They're all very valid ways in which you hear the customer. You're just looking to kind of filter out signal from noise and then take that signal of what they're telling you point them in the right direction of because a lot of that input is exactly what we need to be doing in refining our business or further innovating our products. 
We've seen the role of the CIO change dramatically over the last few years, the role of the CTO. Are you working internally on, on things like employee experience versus working you know, closer and closer with customers? What do you think makes a great CIO or CTO? And what do, what do you think that are some of those things that those CIOs and CTOs need to be working on to be better in the future? Yeah, I think every, you know, the CIOs I respect, they, I mean, the two experiences that are important to them are customer experience and employee experience. And to the extent that what they can do to service, not just their customers internally, which are employees, but also external customers in customer facing websites, supply chains that service customer or partner. Uh, when they're thinking from the standpoint of a business leader, like, hey, you know, what can we do to make this company effective? I think the best CIOs think like business leaders and then employee experiences, they want to make sure that their workplace is transformed so that the employees who work at the company with delightful uh, experience using technology or using tools or using applications and aren't frustrated. I mean, a lot of companies hate the IT systems because it's either crashing all the time as outages or just is unusable. So when you're able to balance both of those together uh, and, you know, CIO and CTO, they're probably getting pressure all that times being they've been bombarded by vendors who want time on that account. They're bombarded by people who are upset. You just have to have a very simple, easy way of being able to, you know, respond to the people that matter to you. And that's why relationships do count a lot. And then just ignore the ones that are just noise because you're, I mean, I'm sure the inbox of a CIO and CTO gets a ton of spam. I, mean, I count the amount of spam I get, but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not often the one making purchase decisions. Uh, but I imagine the CIO of VMware or the other CIOs probably has an inbox that's like, you know, 10, 100 times bigger than mine in terms of inbound requests trying to get their calendar and get their attention. And many vendors, CIOs just ignore vendors. But that's one of the reasons why then having a personal relationship. And I think, listen, for every CIO or CTO you're selling to, the same with CFOs, they, every one of them wants you to be a, tr to be a trusted advisor to them, not to peddle products. That that's a used car salesman kind of approach to selling. That's over. The more you could educate them, the more you could give them a vision of where the world is going, seek their input, co-innovate with them, co-create with them. Those types of approaches are enormously successful. Yeah, I love that. The co-innovation, the co-creation, the ways to expand the things that they're doing on it and that they're passionate about. I'm curious, like, what are you passionate about? What are some of the things that, you know, maybe some technologies that you've been surprised by how successful they've been early on? You know, I know you were, you were really early with, um, with companies like DocuSign and things like that, that have obviously been truly transformational in how we do, you know, identity and signing documents and things like that. I'm just curious, like, what are some of the things that, that uh, you're fired up about? You know, I've always been um, very interested in analytics and data you know, from my my business school days, maybe perhaps even as early as my days interested in math. So I ran the analytics business. I was involved in companies like Informatica. I ran the analytics business at SAP. So I really like AI and data and things that allow you with data to make a more powerful decision. So places where either products or services are using artificial intelligence and data, Google's doing this, Netflix does this, many of the places where consumer data is being used to more powerfully make a decision or businesses do that to more powerfully help customers fascinatingly how that can be used and you know ultimately when i go back to some of my my even my research work i was doing in in college i was trying to design a better and faster way of playing scrabble or chess or whatever have you um as a computer simulation because those are all ways by which you're teaching uh, algorithmically how do you uh, make a smarter you know computer a smarter person who plays the game 
I think the same thing now applies into any place in enterprise software where mass amounts of data could help you serve the customer better. So we're experimenting that with support systems where if based on a lot of the telemetry we're collecting about a customer, we can better service that customer and prevent them from having an outage or a failure. It's just like an airline or a plane, you know, whatever plane that has a lot of telemetry and as a result of that is able to better engineer the way in which any part of the subsystems, whether the engines or anything else work. So that's one that I'm very, very interested in. I'm very interested in ways by which automation can take labor. I mean, you think about simple tasks like spell checking and word processing. I mean, how much that's taken out of the laborious aspect of typing on a typewriter and then putting white out and making spelling mistakes. I mean, the entire aspect of writing and then creating art. I mean, there's an artist in every one of us, whether it's writing or creating pictures um, same thing as I'm a musician. I'm not a very good writer or an artist, but I'm a musician. The entire way in which technology has changed, the way in which you need to play the keyboard and compose at home, uh, all of this automates many of the tasks that were a lot more manual in the past and makes people a lot more productive. So any place that's happening, ultimately the, the extreme example of this today is self-driving driverless cars and where that might head. And I'd say the final piece I'm very intrigued, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm hopeful that you know the science of AI, big data, will solve some fundamental problems in society uh, related to healthcare in our next decade. You know, if you think about the 1990s in healthcare, uh, diseases like HIV were addressed, and you know, a, a good case study of a Magic Johnson now being able to live the rest of his life and not die of HIV is a fabulous story. But we still have some pretty major forms of you know internal cancer or uh, Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's. And, you know, when I talk to doctors who are deep into the science and the research of this, they're hopeful, but there's not been a breakthrough. And I'm hoping in the next decade with a lot of this technology, I just gave three examples, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and some forms of internal cancer is very, it's a very large topic. But you pick a few forms of the most egregious internal cancers that just show up at stage three or stage four, that those will be solved in the next 10 years. And I'm not going to be the one solving it, but I'm going to be very much a student of hopefully the technologies, very much data and analytics and AI that work on top of DNA sequencing and genome sequencing and a lot of the biotech industry to hopefully solve that and, you know, hopefully get our mortality rates even higher. So you were recently, um, you know, at Davos talking about tech for good. Um, this is one of the things, I mean, we're really passionate about on, on this show. And obviously we think technology is, is changing, you know, so many things, uh, you just touch on a little bit with healthcare, but like, why do you think that the idea of like tech for good is something, you know, maybe we're struggling to evangelize or, or struggling to show use cases with? Well, Ian, I think part of the challenges there's a lot of the industry that right now paints tech for bad. And it's partly because large companies, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus to naming anyone, have, as they've gotten more power, have become associated with case studies that, that society thinks, you know, why are they using all of this money that they get to, you know, advertise in a poor way or steer people into societal norms or steer elections? I mean, just stuff like that that ultimately has had resulted in a little bit of a tech backlash. Um, and, you know, invasion of privacy and all of that stuff that's in the controversy the last, I would say, three, five, seven years. Um, I think the B2B, you know, tech community, we're ones, we don't really deal much with consumers. We have been taking things like privacy and security very seriously because that's the key part to, you know, our, the most valuable thing we have is our customers. 
we deal with customer NPS and customer satisfaction at the highest level. Now, we don't deal with a billion of them. We're dealing with half a million of them, 500,000, maybe a million of them. So we get it. And I think I think there's uh, folks who are in this tech B2B who says, listen, I think there's an opportunity now to turn this discussion on its head and really be role models. So first off, every one of us as leaders and executives need to be people who role model integrity and these values. There's no point being able to talk about tech for good and all of this stuff if you're ultimately creating a company or living an individual life that's sort of like an Enron. I mean, if you look at the mission statement and value statement of Enron, it's all available. You can Google and find out. It's like stuff that you read and say, wow, it's very powerful. If you didn't know there was actually Enron and the executives at the top of that weren't living what they said or what they talked about. It was sort of like, do as I say, don't do as I do, so to speak. So first off, I think every leader has to examine themselves and ask themselves, are they living individually in their family and in the extended family of their company as people of integrity? And then I think, you know, in very specific ways in which they can actually, and this is, again, it's not about preaching on a pulpit and this just individual, each company has got their own way. And often they'll be very different. You know, I think I admire a lot of what Mark Benioff is doing at Salesforce and that and to the campaign, we will never have that type of platform and there's only one Mark Benioff in the world. So that's awesome. We cheer on, but there's going to be a unique thing that VMware can do uh, to make our company, first off, a company with high integrity, high values, one of the best places to work. And then we've been like, for example, popularizing things like citizen philanthropy, which is we encourage every individual to give. Uh, but not you know, mandatory, it's just encouraging for every dollar that someone contributes to a cause, they can actually enlist the cause that they want, provided it's a legitimate 503C um, on a um, philanthropy portal, and people give to the Red Cross or whatever they have you, then VMware will match that dollar up to some limit, I think it's $3,000 per year. And then we can, you know, can keep growing that, and people, you know, the participation within the company off that citizen philanthropy has been phenomenal. Just to see the percentages grow 50, 60, 70. I think we have a very high percentage of our employees to participate. And then we, we take pride in that. And then there's also, during the month of November, uh, people in the US, because it's Thanksgiving time, I encourage and role model again, doing social service projects. I've been involved in Second Harvest uh, Food Bank, which is you know, Feeding America, or City Team, which is a local homeless shelter here. Uh, or you know, t- going to a school and helping completely renovate their playground as a volunteer project. So there's a variety of those things, and you do it as a group within, again, not mandatory, but you take as many employees from your company that are willing, in your group that are willing to do it. It's a good way of actually bonding. So these are some ways in which we try to make this notion of tech for good something that we live by. And as we're doing it, we get some interest. People are like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, I'll give one final example. We've been taking some of our customer case studies of some incredible case studies like, you know, Red Cross, Mercy Ships, and parading them on stage at VMworld, which is, you know, we just don't want the biggest brands who are making a lot of money to be the only ones that get the fanfare at our big conferences. We also want the ones who are having an impact on society. You know, I think often, oh, we'll get a speaker like Malala, who is, uh, you know, the lady, a young girl at the time, she's now a woman, but at the time, I think she was a 12 or 13 year old when she got shot by the Taliban and then Several years later, she got the Nobel Peace Prize. We had her as a keynote speaker for the first time in any tech conference. And those are the types of things that allow us to send a message that's different in the midst of some of a tech backlash. And that's gotten some good attention. I talked about some of those in some of the panels at Davos a couple of weeks ago. 
Yeah, you know, last question before uh, you're a busy guy and we got to get you out of here. Um, and this is our, our lightning round. Thanks to our good friends at Salesforce Customer 360 Platform. Um, so lightning round questions. What app on your phone is the most fun? I think it's any of the music apps because I listen to a lot of music, whether it's Spotify, YouTube, uh, and then any of the video basics. I watch a lot of, of video. And then probably the third most of the social media ones. Those are the ones I use. I'm not a big gamer. I don't a lot of games, but those are probably music, video, and social media, the ones I use the most. What about what's your hidden talent or passion? Hidden talent or passion? Well, I, I, it's music for sure. I, I mean, I don't get to do much of it at work because I'm working, but I love playing the piano. I love jazz and blues. And anytime it's a very, very, I'm used to playing a band before and every now and then I still get a few collection people who do it. And I've been known to do keynotes where I'll break into a, I'll come on stage and uh, performing a song, just doing it for fun. But music is definitely, I don't know if it's secret because people know that I do that fair amount, but it's definitely a passion of mine. Well, favorite musician then? Uh, you know, it's far ranging. Everything from Eric Clapton to John Coltrane, I mean, to, I mean, the B.B. King to all of the, the Latin jazz. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm very, you know, it would orient more to the blues and jazz and gospel style of music. And I'm pretty, I mean, I'm pretty open-minded to a lot of the, um, you know, rhythm and tunes. Well, last question. Uh, what question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? If you could retire today, what would you do? Cause I don't, I yeah. still feel like I've got another, I don't know, 15, 20 years that I want to work. What would you do? No, I wish I was gifted enough to say, I just go play music the rest of my life. But I think I would find some community cause I'm really passionate about with a friend or when my you know, kids grow up, maybe my wife, because she's, we're all pretty busy with that kids, it would be hard to do it with, with her. But if I was able to do it, which could make a difference in the world. Um, and, you know, certainly starting off in the community that's closer. I mean, I'll give you an example, one that I'm really, really pained by is homelessness now in San Francisco and San Jose. It's, you know, I grew up in India around poverty and I saw slums and shelters and, and people homeless. And, you know, there's only so much you could do, but you would hope in a country where the economic good is growing for everybody that we're starting to rid that from our society. So that would be something that would be really good to find a way to sink one's teeth into. Could we solve that, you know, not for the entire world, but in the area you live? And here there's two big cities, San Francisco and San Jose, that are struggling with homelessness. So there's some way to solve that. I'd love to devote the next 20 years of my life if I wasn't working at VMware to doing that. If people did, if I think if people retired earlier in their life, uh, and it's hard because we're all so passionate about our work, but if we really were passionate about it and said, hey, you know what, we've got enough savings, we can probably live, and we're just going to give up on this, and we're really going to go and serve the community. We did that, I think we'd probably get some very interesting solutions to these world problems. And one of the amazing things about VMware is you have so many customers and people that are working on on those super hard problems. So we uh, thanks for coming, coming by. We appreciate it. Any final thoughts? No, and thank you for having me. I hope this is an inspiration to whoever, maybe that uh, 18-year-old Sanjay who's just coming to the country into the college or 22-year-old is joining. I'm really passionate about the next generation, and I hope that they uh, will do things that are even bigger and better than what we've done. Um, and I think, you know, we're at a very, very interesting time in the tech uh, technology industry. We're really at an interesting time in the world where many things are going well, but there's also a lot of problems that are going to be solved. So thank you for having me on my show, and I wish you all the best. Take care. 
IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.